Hello, everyone. Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And as always, I'm proud and honored to have all of you with us today. It's been eight years since I put my first two podcast episodes out there for public consumption, taking that big step into the unknown future of podcasting. The first two stories were called Gremlins and When John Wayne Went to Harvard. Gremlins was really a World War II story about the mythical troublemaking imps that were believed to have been causing mechanical problems in Royal Air Force bombers. It was a fascinating story, as are all of the World War II stories done here. World War II was an incredible time in world history, and thousands of stories have come and are still coming out of it. They are stories of incredible courage, sacrifice, and commitment during very hard and very deadly times. Today, we have a culture that tries to deny the qualities of male toughness, integrity, bravery, and leadership. My heroes, from the time I was small, were men, and in some cases, women, who showed courage against adversity. They had integrity, honor, character, a sense of right versus wrong morality, a fierce independence, inner toughness, and conviction. Some were TV and movie stars, like John Wayne and Gary Cooper. Some were real-life heroes like Jackie Robinson, and later, England's Margaret Thatcher. I saw the John Wayne Goes to Harvard story as an example of personal courage and conviction. The story of a famous actor who wasn't afraid to risk being scorned by the public because of his pro-American soldier and anti-communist views, which were very unpopular at the time. He went to Harvard in the late 60s because the Harvard Lampoon Club basically dared him to attend a public event in the lecture hall at Harvard. Of course, the climate at Harvard was anti-war and anti-male hero figures. He wanted to promote his pro-Vietnam War movie, The Green Berets, and he knew exactly what he was walking into. Not that he walked into it exactly. Actually, he called up an Army Reserve unit near Cambridge and asked them for a tank. They gave him a troop carrier which wouldn't rip up the streets, and he rode into Harvard Square on it, in camo. Then he walked into that hall and traded barbs respectfully with young adults less than half his age who thought Vietnam was a waste of time and that his movie and those fighting men he was portraying didn't deserve their respect. He didn't come unprepared either. He undoubtedly had a few plants in the audience who asked the right questions he could answer with humor and dignity. When he walked out, he walked out with their respect, in part because he had actually come and delivered his point of view. He shared his core beliefs, which were contrary to theirs, and he did it with confidence and class. Those were the days when many universities could tolerate opposing points of view, in other words, conservative viewpoints. Those days, as I understand it, are no longer here for most colleges and universities. They might preach diversity, but they don't live it. I don't understand why any university wouldn't welcome opposing points of view if the object is to teach. There was a large and well-organized anti-war movement then in the late 60s. There still is a divided viewpoint among Americans as to whether or not we should have been drafting young men to fight in that war. Wayne was pro-American fighting man, and some say his movie Green Berets was pro-war. It certainly showed the ugliness of war and the cost of the war in lives. Many believe that Wayne, as he did in previous wars, was trying to support the men who were serving and set an example of their courage. The movie The Green Berets accomplished that. 
"'It goes a long way toward answering why I chose to do this story now on John Wayne. "'After all, folks, I work in the world of podcasting, "'a very young and rapidly growing medium, as well as a very diverse one. "'In podcasting, you're on your own. "'You can express your own opinions, "'and if your listeners enjoy the creative product you offer, "'you can do well and grow. Eight years and 20 million or so listens later, I can safely say that although it was scary at the time, and by the way, it took months to get to 500 listeners in early 2015, it was a good life decision for me. I have never enjoyed work so much and gotten so much out of it. And your many thousands of reviews continue to remind me that you appreciate a well-told story. Maybe that John Wayne goes to Harvard decision was helped just a bit by watching lots of John Wayne movies in my formative years. Those were movies in which the characters stood up for what they believed. They had core principles which guided their actions. There was no gray line between right and wrong that took them hours or days to make a decision on. Those were heroes who built and fought for a nation. They stood up against cattle rustlers, warring Indians, our enemies at war, and they stood up for law and order, justice and right. We still do have heroes out there saving people's lives every day, enforcing the law, serving to protect the U.S. interests worldwide, and helping to maintain the free world. In the process of researching this story, I checked online to see if people are talking about John Wayne, and if they were, what are they saying? After all, he acted and died a long time ago, 1979, so I wasn't sure what I would find. I was surprised at the dozens and dozens of recent articles I found, mostly positive expressing what many people feel is the lack of core values found in young men today, coupled with the desire to have these same boys take a few pages from John Wayne's book, as one of those writers put it. The number of articles of that ilk surprised me. In an article, The Duke Rides Again, for Cowboys and Indians magazine, John Wayne's daughter Marisa was quoted as saying, I think he'd have no clue, even after being gone 30 years, that he'd still be so popular and beloved. I think that would mean a lot to him. Okay, but why John Wayne, you ask? He was just an actor, and he was from another era that seems far removed from today. So why don't these same articles express the desire for other screen icons to lead the way? There's an easy test there. See if you can name a few actors, recent or old time, who project integrity, toughness, leadership, discipline, and patriotism in nearly every character they played, as well as in real life. And how many have an airport named after them? And there's your answer. Those same articles say the boys are not being taught that as boys they need to develop manly qualities. They say that not enough fathers are teaching those qualities to their sons. And maybe there's not enough fathers available. There are a number of reasons as to why. Apparently few people even know or agree what manly qualities are, or are openly critical of manliness, calling it toxic masculinity. That's a big one. Indeed, in movies and on TV, girls are portrayed as superwomen, leading FBI raids, kicking down doors, beating up on bad guys, starring as gunslingers in westerns, denying motherhood roles, and often treating men as weak counterparts who are incapable of making strong decisions. Those same articles say that young boys and girls are confused as to what gender they should identify with. They tend to say American culture has gone downhill and that we need a reset. Even as adults, there are times when we fail to speak up. 
like when someone butts in front of us in line, or steals our parking spot, or just shows a total lack of courtesy or decency, like carrying on a cell phone conversation in a restaurant, the likes of which happen more and more these days, or when we see school administrators telling parents that they could have no say in how or what the children are being taught, or we see children in schools acting with no respect for the teachers or each other, or when we see elected officials making decisions which are harmful to us or our children and we don't speak up, or when we see things on TV that make our stomachs turn, but we never complain or cancel the subscription. All of us, as society continues to break down, require a shot of courage now and then, and when we show courage, we inspire others. So how do we get inspired? A round of good John Wayne movies might be one prescription for preparing to stiffen your backbone. They inspire, they instruct, they show you the way. And in the case of well-chosen movies and even classic literature, they can teach young adults what men and women acted like a few generations ago with regard to respect for each other and how they displayed the qualities of honor, integrity, humility, wholesomeness, restraint, politeness, virtue, and honesty. Qualities which, in the opinion of many, are no longer being taught in schools or in many cases, households. What happened in the last 100 years? Throughout this story, I'll take you through John Wayne's career, share some stories about him, and sometimes offer commentary, stories, and opinions about many of his movies. At times, I'll offer some ideas as to what his characters, and sometimes John Wayne himself, gave us in terms of character values, in terms of virtues, as we go forward. One cautious note, I'm not saying that John Wayne projected all these virtues. Like all of us, he was a flawed man. But the point I'm trying to make is that we can learn a lot from the strong characters he played. And in my opinion, no one in film history has ever played them so well. Here's an example of a John Wayne quote. I'm sure he didn't invent it, but it's useful for sharing. Stand for something, or you'll fall for anything. We live in a world where values are thrown away and the popular tendency is to follow the crowd. Teenagers are the biggest victims of this mentality. The idea here is to know your mind and be able to stand up for what you believe instead of tucking your tail between your legs and running away. If a person can't stand up for himself or herself, how are they supposed to stand up for those that depend on them? In John Wayne's movie The Alamo, for example, ex-congressman and famed frontiersman Davy Crockett left his home state of Tennessee to help Texians fight for their statehood and freedom from Mexico. Crockett was answering the call for freedom that had spread far beyond the borders of Texas. He didn't need to join that fight. He could have stayed in Tennessee and led a pretty good life. He thought it out for a long time and knew that heading for Texas was the right thing to do, the right thing for him. One quote which was attributed to him was, Always be sure you're right and then go ahead. When he reached the Alamo, the fort's commander, Colonel Travis, offered the legendary Crockett any rank he desired. Crockett said he didn't need to be assigned any rank. Just point him to a spot on the walls and let he and his men fight. That showed humility. For days, Crockett and his men fought bravely, never complaining, never faltering. When the Alamo fell, they fell with it. That fight and their sacrifice led to Texas becoming a free state. 
What follows here is the story of a man who worked his way up a long time before he became one of America's favorite movie stars and action heroes. All that fame didn't come to him on a silver platter, and it didn't come quickly. He wasn't perfect by any means, and as a husband, father, and family man, he would probably tell you that although he tried hard, he came up short on much of those accounts. Making movies was his livelihood, and it took him away a lot. But there were good moments, and we'll talk about them in the next two episodes. It'll take more than one episode to tell this story right. This is a story everyone can learn something from. Men, boys, women, and girls. All ages, all backgrounds, all colors, all political beliefs. It crosses the scale. It's really a story of society and culture, and how it has been changing over the years. Also, we can learn from the past. John Wayne did have some great qualities as a man that showed through his characters. He made the characters he played believable because in many ways, he was them. People who knew him said he was a good man, a decent man, a hard-working man, and a damn good character actor. We'll talk about that, and how it all started and ended for him. We'll discuss the legacy he left behind for us. Through his movies and characters, he left a trail that's pretty easy to follow. To millions of boys in my generation, he, along with our fathers, served as a role model. It's time to mount up and follow that trail as I share his story and try to make the case as to why John Wayne still matters today. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now back to our story. Are you ready, Mr. Nightlinger? Born ready, Miss Anderson. Let's go to Belfouche. Over now. Yes, sir. Move around, Willie. Sergeant Curdy. Move them up, Bob. Bob, I'm First, we begin with John Wayne's story. He was born Marion Robert Morrison in Winterset, Iowa in 1907 on May 26th. John Wayne experts are going to disagree with the middle name I just gave them, Robert, thinking it should be Michael. 
Well, they're partly right, but I'm right in saying he was born with the name Marion Robert Morrison. When their second son came along, his mom and dad changed Marion's middle name to Michael so their second son could have Robert. He moved west with his family in 1914 and settled in Glendale, California. He had an Airedale dog named Duke who watched over him and soon he was given the nickname Duke. Actually, he was befriended by a crew of local firefighters who began calling he and his dog Big Duke and Little Duke. The nickname Big Duke stuck, and he carried that nickname Duke throughout his career. When he got beaten up by an older kid, one of the firefighters who had fought in the ring gave him lessons on how to fight. In school, his name Marion prompted fights, because it was typically a girl's name, and the Duke started learning quickly applying the skills his friend the firefighter had taught him, and soon he wasn't picked on anymore. His parents were Clyde Doc Morrison, a pharmacist, and Mary Molly Brown, and as you already know, he had one younger brother named Robert. He did well academically and athletically at Glendale High School, and was good enough to earn a football scholarship to USC, which he attended until a body surfing injury ended his football career and his scholarship. He went out looking for work and found a job at Fox Studios working as a prop man on movie sets, moving furniture, equipment, and material around for movie directors. He was six foot four and well built, which was noticed, and he was asked to stand in as an extra, which he did, first appearing as a football player in the movie Brown of Harvard in 1926 and again in Dropkick in 1927. It was in 1926 or 1927 that Morrison, working as a prop man, met an older Wyatt Earp, who had ended his career in travels in Los Angeles, becoming fascinated with filmmaking, and offered his services in helping Fox Films to make realistic westerns. Morrison was fascinated by Earp, who took the time during breaks at work to explain to Duke the techniques he used to control drunks and outlaws when he was a marshal, and the young man eagerly absorbed all he was told and shown. Young Fox director John Ford gave him a job herding geese in a 1928 film called Mother McCray, and the two men hit it off well, although Ford kept Morrison in extra roles, never crediting him as a real acting talent. Eventually, Ford introduced Morrison to director Raoul Walsh, who gave Duke his first starring role as cowboy Breck Coleman in the 1930 film The Big Trail. Studio executives soon decided that he might have a chance and gave him the name John Wayne. Throughout the 30s, John Wayne diligently and methodically honed his craft while starring in a series of B-Westerns, spending most of his time with stuntmen and real-life cowboys, learning the skills that would make his Western characters more realistic. Over this time, between 1928 and 1938, ten years, he developed his fist-fighting skills, his method of walking, his horsemanship, and his Western wear preferences, not to mention doing his own stunts. In 1939, his big break came when John Ford cast him as the Ringo Kid in what was to become the classic Western movie, Stagecoach. Director Ford earned an Academy Award for directing that movie. Ford had no idea that soon he would be joining the U.S. Marines and using his film experience to document the brutal Japanese attack on the Marine base at Wake Island in December of 1941. John Wayne, having worked at his craft for ten years before getting a serious part, showed the first of his many true qualities that were to shine through in the characters he played, that being discipline. 
He didn't whine. He didn't complain. He didn't ask for handouts, or time off, or raises in pay, or rewards. He knew he was lucky to be working during the Depression. He showed up for work each day for years, and gave it all he had. He soaked up the business of filming like a sponge. He asked questions. He made friends. He didn't gripe. And he was criticized as not being acting material. It must have rankled. He was treated like a set gopher. In the 1930s, the young Wayne had challenges with drinking that nearly toppled his fledgling career. He learned to control it. He met stuntmen like Yakima Canute and Ward Bond, who became lifelong friends. In the 1930s, both John Wayne and his director had big hopes for a movie they were working on called Big Trail, previously mentioned. It flopped, and Wayne's hopes for stardom plummeted with it. That movie's failure relegated all attempts at westerns to B-movie status for years. But Wayne took the failure and criticism and learned from it, and he learned from others. It was Martin Luther King who once said, If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, Here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. A man or woman who lacks discipline will not only accomplish little in life, they will not be able to lead others. A man at his best, as most of John Wayne's characters were, is a warrior and a leader. He's the head of the household, as the Duke reminded us in the movie The Quiet Man. He was not often speechless, although his co-star in that movie, Maureen O'Hara, whispered something unscripted in his ear that to this day hasn't been revealed, and a lot of people have tried. But the three people who knew, Maureen O'Hara, John Wayne, and director John Ford, never gave it up. Whatever it was he said stopped him dead in his tracks and rendered him speechless for once. The two became lifelong friends afterwards. That movie, The Quiet Man, has a number of lessons in it for men and women. Maureen O'Hara worked with a painfully broken hand through most of those scenes and never said a word. She did days' worth of scenes immersed in mud and never complained. In the movie, Wayne's character marries O'Hara's, but she refuses access to the bedroom until her dowry is paid a tradition Wayne's American character doesn't understand. To complicate things, he's an ex-boxer who killed a man in the ring, and to get the dowry, he has to fight her brother. He doesn't want to fight him, believing he might kill him. Well, she thinks he's afraid to fight him. The brother also thinks Wayne's character, Jean, is afraid to fight him. So he is thought by both of them to be a coward. The character John Wayne plays has to show extreme self-discipline to navigate the complicated waters, and it gets interesting. The Quiet Man is a favorite of many John Wayne fans, and it is a great flick. As for John Wayne being a disciplined man, a man isn't born with discipline. He learns it. He learns that if he can direct his own will, he can limit his vices and take pride in his will to work. John Wayne was known to be a drinker, yes, but according to everything I've read, which includes dozens of comments from men and women who acted with him. He rarely showed up late for work or with a hangover. It might just be that he perfected the solution to a hangover, too. No one's sure. But he showed up on the set early every morning with a clear head. By 1939, after making 60 films, almost all of them forgettable, John Wayne was well-seasoned as an actor.
That year, the film Stagecoach opened to the public at Radio City Music Hall in New York, and the film was nominated for six Oscars. None of them went to John Wayne, but the film succeeded in getting him attention in an Oscar-nominated film. It would be a few more years of B-movies before John Wayne's star began to rise. It was in the late 30s that Hollywood began to be divided over the virtues and vices of Hitler in Germany and Mussolini in Italy. Some influential figures in Hollywood expressed admiration for Hitler and Mussolini, the men they called Europe's strong men. But overall, many of the studios were run by Jews who saw what Hitler was doing and took it seriously. Since the communists did not see eye-to-eye with Hitler's Nazis, Jewish-led communist party groups began to flourish in Hollywood. Pressure was put upon President Roosevelt to boycott items from Germany, and dozens of fundraising events took place to support communist anti-fascist efforts. Wayne commented to one biographer that screenwriters generally thought themselves intellectually superior to mere actors, producers, directors, and studio executives, and that many of them, the writers, belonged to an alliance of liberals and communists. Henry Fonda, who did consider himself a liberal, recalled, Duke didn't express his politics early on, but I think he was drifting to the right. I understand that because Jimmy Stewart and I fell out over a difference in politics. Jimmy was to the right, and I was to the left. And when we realized our friendship was being destroyed by politics, we decided never to discuss politics again. John Wayne only followed one track when it came to socialism, communism, and lefties, and it was the right track. He never wavered. In the 1940s, Wayne's roles grew, his co-stars got bigger, his family grew to four children, whom he rarely had time to see, and his bank account started growing exponentially. The number two John Wayne quality is that he was an unapologetic American patriot. He stood for something. In Hollywood in the 40s and 50s, there was a lot going on behind the scenes with regard to Russian intelligence tactics which were used to promote anti-American thought. Wayne saw this from the start and railed against it. He lost a number of actor friends in the process. He lost some acting opportunities in the process. He was denounced and vilified by many, but he never wavered. You knew what side he was on. That patriotism came across in every fiber of his being from the time he first hit the screen until his last breath. He had no back down in him when it came to that. There are a number of stories and anecdotes that deal with this. I'll start with the little-known story of John Wayne's efforts to keep socialists out of Hollywood in the time of Stalin. It's a known fact today, if you look hard enough, that Stalin maintained an active interest in Hollywood filmmaking, like his predecessor, Lenin, for the simple reason that films had an impact on millions of people and the way they acted and voted and thought about their own country's weaknesses and inequities. Stalin's efforts in Hollywood included sending agents to work with scriptwriters and working to get actors and talent with known Soviet ties into the filmmaking industry. When British actor Peter Cushing returned from making two films in Hong Kong in 1973, he told John Wayne biographer Michael Munn in detail about the problems China was experiencing as they slipped deeper into communism. One of the stories Cushing shared was a common story then in China, the Chairman Mao had hatched a plot with Joseph Stalin to have a big American film star killed. Assuming the story was true, Peter said, 
the big American film star, was known for two things. He was known to hate communists, and he was famous as a screen cowboy. Surely that can't be true, he told biographer Munn. Yet that's what these wonderful Chinese people told me. I wonder if it was John Wayne they meant. When Michael Munn got his chance to meet with, and luckily become friends with, John Wayne, while he was working in England on the set of Brannigan, he recalled the conversation with Cushing and asked the Duke if there was any truth to it. Wayne answered, Well, once the genie's out of the bottle, it's impossible to put it back again. I've been criticized for years because I made my feelings known about those pinko bastards. I said it in the 50s and again in the 60s. I'll be straight with you. The communists have been trying to kill me since 1949. But as you can see, they didn't do a very good job of it. He then shared some incidents that never made the papers, including an attempt on his life while visiting troops in Vietnam in 1966, and on American soil, attempts which, thanks to the FBI and some close friends like Jimmy Grant and longtime friend and stuntman Yakima Canute. The agents told me I needed special protection, but I said, hell, I'm not going to hide away for the rest of my life. This is the land of the free, and that's the way I'm going to stay. A later conversation with Canute revealed an incident which involved Wayne, Yakima Canute, and Jimmy Grant, decoying and then cornering two Russian agents at gunpoint, and then turning them over to the FBI. It's a true story, but rarely told. Biographer Munn was surprised a year later while speaking with Orson Welles about the Hollywood Ten and the witch hunts, and Welles, who was no great fan of John Wayne, blurted out, Stalin was mad, of course. He should have been put in a straitjacket. Only a madman like Joseph Stalin would have tried to have John Wayne killed. Orson Welles then went on to explain that he had heard about it from Soviet director Sergei Mondarjik while making Waterloo in 1970. Wells revealed answers to the Who's, the Why's, and the How's, leaving biographer Munn stunned. One of Wayne's favorite subjects in high school was history, especially American history. Two of his best friends at Glendale were Bob and Bill Bradbury. Their father was making short films which featured his sons, and one of those was the Alamo. Wayne was to say later that the story of the Alamo was the ultimate fight for freedom, and that that didn't apply just to Americans, but to all countries. Seeing that film that Bradbury made had a huge effect on the Duke, and from that day in 1926 on, he swore he would one day make that film himself, The Alamo. It was a story of freedom and courage right in the face of adversity, he felt, and making that film became his lifelong passion. He would make it many years later, and it would almost bankrupt him to do it, but he did it. We'll talk about that in the story to come. So that's two qualities he brought us, discipline and patriotism. John Wayne's characters often showed a tendency to treat women with respect. In John Wayne's world, men were seen as being biologically different than women. Add the plumbing, the hormones, the musculature and framework, and men were different than women. And from birth, boys and girls think and act differently. There are things seen as masculine and feminine. In his world, mothers provided role models for females. Fathers were role models for males. The differences between male and female enabled couples to come together and combine the strengths of each sex to raise children. And each sex had its strengths. Wayne believed that maintaining the image of a strong, decisive, brave man was important to his movie watchers. 
His characters were always respectful to women, never cussing in front of them, always tipping hats or opening doors for them, always recognizing them politely with a hello ma'am or hello miss. You'll rarely see him step out of line here. He treated soiled doves and dance hall girls with the same respect with which he treated church ladies. And here's a story you can share with a John Wayne basher friend if you have one. What did the Duke think of gays? Biographer Michael Munn got into that discussion with the Duke while they were talking about finishing up True Grit, the movie for which Wayne was awarded the Oscar. The movie was wrapped, and Wayne was able to spend Christmas with his kids, a really good Christmas, when all seemed to be going right. The movie, The Undefeated, was the next on the production schedule, and one of the co-stars in that movie was Rock Hudson. Outside of Hollywood, most people didn't know Rock Hudson was gay until he died of age in 1985. But inside Hollywood, they all knew. Wayne said of him, he was one of the most professional guys I ever worked with. Andy McLaughlin was directing The Undefeated, and we had a lot of old friends in the cast, like John Agar, Ben Johnson, Paul Fix, and Harry Carey. And we had Rock Hudson. Munn asked if Wayne knew that Rock Hudson was gay. Who the hell cares, he said. The man plays great chess. We had many a game up there in Durango. It never bothered me. Life's too short. Munn interviewed Rock Hudson a few years later, and Hudson said, I was grateful to Duke because my career was going down the toilet at that time. Then I got a call from Andy McLaughlin saying Duke Wayne wants you to make a movie in Durango. You think you're up to making a western? I wanted to fall on the ground and give praise, but I didn't want to appear desperate. I told them I'd be happy to join them in Durango, and said I'd better get some practice getting on and off a horse. Hudson continued, The film was crap, but it came out right after True Grit, so a lot of people went to see it. John Wayne was then the Hollywood legend, and I was on screen with him. The guy's an angel. He saved my life back then when no other screen filmmaker wanted to know me. In 1949, John Wayne played Sergeant Stryker in what would turn out to be Republic Films' biggest film, The Sands of Iwo Jima. At first, Wayne was unsure of the film's success, believing that Americans had had enough of war. But, Wayne realized, this one had class. It was written by Harry Brown, and Wayne was able to call in his scriptwriter Jimmy Grant to tweak it. Plus the director, Alan Dwan, was a great director. Wayne would earn 180000 plus 10% of the profits although he would admit that he got far more out of that film than money. He would later say, The role itself was such a good one for me. The picture was made with much more realism than others. There were real Marines used as extras. There was no phoniness in it. The film was groundbreaking in 1949 for being the first motion picture to combine actual war footage with Hollywood recreation. Many actual survivors of Iwo Jima and Tinian and Taroa had roles as extras in the film. One of those men was Colonel David M. Shoup, who was awarded the Medal of Honor for actions on Tarawa. Lieutenant Colonel Harold Schreer, who led the 5th Marine Regiment up Mount Suribachi. And Colonel Henry Pearson Crow, who commanded the 8th Marines on Tarawa, and whose waxed mustache makes him easy to spot. The legendary Marines who helped raise the flag on Suribachi. Ira Hayes, the subject of a Johnny Cash tribute song. Rene Gagnon, and Navy Corpsman James H. Bradley. All have cameos in the film, The Sands of Iwo Jima. And here's a Sands of Iwo Jima fact that very few people know. 
1950, John Wayne became the 125th celebrity to be honored with a star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. Wayne left impressions with his hands and feet in the concrete outside of Grauman's famous Chinese theater. As a special nod to Duke's role as Sergeant Stryker, the concrete used for Wayne Square was mixed with black sand shipped all the way from that tiny volcanic island of the Pacific where so many U.S. Marines gave their lives. Wayne prepared for the film by spending time at Camp Pendleton talking to Marines, especially the sergeants. He received his first Oscar nomination for that film. Wayne's character, Sergeant Stryker, is haunted by personal demons, along with the fact that his wife has just left him and taken his only son with her. He is hated and feared by his men, who are green recruits, and see him as a cold-hearted sadist. But when their boots hit the beaches, they begin to understand the reason for Stryker's rigid form of discipline. Cruel as it was, its purpose was to keep them alive as much as possible under what turned out to be very deadly consequences. The film is emotionally gripping and filled with intense battle scenes, all bound together with Wayne's larger-than-life performance. It is a great but sad film. In 1950, John Wayne topped the list of the top ten box office stars. He would stay in the top ten for the next 20 years, and he would stay a major star for the next 30 years. His career would end with a total of 179 television and film productions. He was married three times, first to Josephine Saints, with whom he had four children, the first being Michael, who started his film career as a production assistant on The Quiet Man and worked for his father's production company, Bat Jack Productions. He also served as a producer on some of his dad's most famous movies, including The Green Berets, Cahill, U.S. Marshal, McClintock, and The Alamo. Wayne's first daughter, Tony, appeared in The Quiet Man in a cameo role. She also had an uncredited role in The Alamo. Then came Patrick Wayne, the Duke's second son. Patrick had a role in The Searchers, as well as other films. And when you ask most people for their top five favorite John Wayne movies, The Searchers will be in there as well. It's a great movie. Then came Melinda, Wayne's second daughter. She had some child appearances in Duke's films, but pretty much stayed out of the movies as she got older. No children were born to Wayne and his second wife, Chada. Three children were born to Wayne and his third wife, Peruvian-born Pilar Pellet. And those were Aisa, who became a successful trial attorney in L.A., John Ethan, who became an accomplished actor and director, and who currently serves as the director of the John Wayne Enterprises and the John Wayne Cancer Foundation, and Maria Wayne, born February 22, 1966, who had a few child cameos, but prefers the off-screen life with her husband and family. Next came the Howard Hughes film Flying Leathernecks, for which Wayne was paid the pricely sum of $3 million. Flying Leathernecks is a good film, and Wayne, in the role of a tough officer and Marine Corps World War II pilot who has to make difficult decisions that put the lives of his men on the line. It's a showcase for the qualities of leadership. In 1951, he was off to Ireland with John Ford and company to work on The Quiet Man. I covered the basic plot earlier, but I'll go a little deeper here as The Quiet Man is on top of most people's favorite John Wayne film list, and I can add a few behind-the-scenes stories and tips that will enhance your next viewing. The film was something of a departure for Wayne and Ford, who were both known mostly for westerns and other action-oriented films. It was also a departure for Republic Pictures, which backed Ford in what was considered a risky venture at that time. Ford had read the story in 1933 and soon purchased the rights to it for $10.
the story's author was paid another 2500 when Republic bought the idea, and he received a final payment of 3750 when the film was actually made. Republic Pictures agreed to finance the film with O'Hara and Wayne starring and Ford directing, but only if all three agreed to first film a Western with Republic. They did, and that film was Rio Grande. After filming Rio Grande, they headed for Ireland to start shooting. And we'll get back to Rio Grande a few more times before these stories are done. One of the conditions that Republic placed on Ford was that the film run under two hours. However, the finished picture was two hours and nine minutes. When screening the film for Republic executives, Ford stopped the film at approximately two hours in, on the verge of the climactic fistfight. Republic executives relented and allowed the film to run its full length. It was one of the few films that Republic filmed in Technicolor. Most of the studio's other color films were made in a more economical process known as true color. It has been said that every single outdoor scene has greenery in it. You'll have to watch that to confirm it. The film employed many actors from the Irish Theater, including Barry Fitzgerald's brother, Arthur Shields, as well as extras from the Irish countryside, and it's one of the few Hollywood movies in which the Irish language can be heard. Filming commenced on June 7, 1951. All the outdoor scenes were shot on location in Ireland in County Mayo and County Galway. The inside scenes were filmed toward the end of July at the Republic Studios in Hollywood. Vaughn Corrigan reports that Ford made considerable efforts to get the costumes correct for the period, 1920s Ireland, with O'Mail, the original house of style in Galway, tasked with sourcing the costumes. The story is set in the fictional community of Innisfree. Many scenes for the film were actually shot in and around the village of Kong, County Mayo, on the grounds of Kong's Ashford Castle. Kong is now a wealthy small town and the castle a five-star luxury hotel. The connections with the film have led to the area becoming a tourist attraction. In 2008, a pub opened in the building used as the pub in the film. It had actually been at a shop at the time when the movie was shot. The pub hosts daily reruns of the film on DVD. The Quiet Man Fan Club holds its annual general meeting in Ashford Castle. When Maureen O'Hara died in October 2015, her family stated that she listened to music from The Quiet Man during her final hours. Filmmaker George A. Romero was also said to have died listening to that score. Earlier I mentioned that O'Hara had broken her hand. She did that swinging a roundhouse punch at Wayne's chin. He put a hand up to protect himself, and her hand hit the top of his fingers and then his jaw. That scene was no doubt egged on by director Ford, who had a reputation of driving his actors to the point of whatever emotion he wanted. In O'Hara's case, she admitted she was so mad at Wayne's character at that moment that she wanted to kill him. She would also say later that it became very competitive on the set. Duke had his gang, like Ward Bond and John Ford, and I had my gang of Irish actors, she said. And yes, she was born in Dublin. We had that long scene where Duke had to drag me across the countryside, and we filmed part of it on the golf course of Ashford Castle, where the grass was kept short by the sheep constantly grazing on it. So the field was covered in sheep manure. There was Duke's gang kicking more and more manure along the path he had to drag me, and my gang would go in and kick it out. But Duke's gang won and he dragged me on my stomach through that sheep manure, and it stank. Wayne would later say, 
Ireland was just a beautiful place to be. At most evenings after work, I went fishing with Ward Bond. A little later, we'd go up to a place where there was a waterfall, and then I'd go back to Ashford Castle, where I was staying, and I'd play gin rummy with Pappy. That's John Ford. I was able to have all four of my children there for a while, and Pappy was able to use them in at least one scene, and that scene was the horse race. Maureen recalled Duke had a great relationship with his children. She said, He was wonderful with his boys. Michael, being the oldest, had to keep the others in line. The youngest of the four was Melinda, who would hide from Michael when he came back looking for them to send them to bed, and she'd run up to me and say, Hide me, and I'd hide her. Maureen also found herself keeping Chada, Wayne's current wife, company. She said, When I had a day off, I'd take Chada to see the sights. There were monuments, old monasteries, castles. We got on well together, but I could see that she and Duke weren't happy. Tempestuous love scenes notwithstanding, the quiet man is best remembered for the epic fistfight between Sean and Mary Kate's brother, whose name was Will, played by ex-bare-knuckle prizefighter Victor McLaughlin. John Wayne was to say, I was no youngster at 45, but Victor was nearing 70, and he said, Don't you worry about me, youngster. I can still give you a good whooping if I have to. And sure enough, when we did that fight, which took endless hours and days of rehearsing and shooting, Victor never let up. When Pappy cut for the last time, Victor was still standing. We mentioned Victor McLaughlin when we did the Jack Johnson story here at 1001. McLaughlin went toe-to-toe with Jack Johnson in a three-round exhibition fight, and Johnson, the undisputed world champion at the time, couldn't knock him out. McLaughlin got into movies, became Wayne's good friend, and played many a supporting role in his movies, including The Irish Sergeant in Rio Bravo, and other films. If you've seen enough John Wayne movies, you'll recognize Victor McLaughlin's face. It carries the marks of many a prize fight. We'll return next week with part two of Remembering John Wayne, and we'll cover some of his better-known movies from 1952 through his last movie, The Shootist. One of the movies we'll be covering next week will be the 1952 western Hondo, which was filmed in Snow Canyon outside of St. George, Utah. A lot of extras and crew were involved and many of them, including the Duke and co-star Susan Hayward, contracted cancer not long afterwards. Snow Canyon was about 120 miles south of where the atom bomb tests had been done, and apparently a lot of radioactive dust had blown into and been trapped in that canyon. If you're enjoying our John Wayne story, please do take a moment and send us a review. If you want to send a review telling me Wayne was a racist and a homophobe and a white beater, just please keep it to yourself. Thank you very much for being with us today for part one of Remembering John Wayne. We'll return next Sunday at noon Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.
upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.